start, you see this just massive metal that's this orange color and it's just towering over everything. And it does, it looks so ugly. It looks so out of place. Uh, it's uh, a structure, it's a very towering structure. It's uh, the section that's close to my house is a cement wall of about nine meters long, between eight and nine, de depending on the area. Uh, Essentially, you know, this dirt road that you're driving on and to your left, you know, you could almost touch it is, is the border wall and then there's Mexico right there, you know. The wall is not built on the border between, say, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Um, it is built inside Bethlehem, one and a half kilometers in. A lot of the discourse around borders, in the media, in our daily lives, centers around crossing them. Who crosses borders? How they cross? Why they cross? One thing remains constant, the fact that borders exist as a seemingly obvious reality. It's almost like they've always been around, and we, as people, are the ones passing through and crossing over. At least, that's how I'd seen things for a long while. But in recent years, there's something I've come across repeatedly, a saying that has really made me think. I first heard it in a lecture on Spanish sociolinguistics and later in a Palestinian rap song. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. That's what today's episode is about. The borders that crossed people rather than the other way around. I'm Shraddha Joshi, and today on Broadcast from the Border, we're talking about two walls, one in occupied Palestine and one in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, and how they stand as physical manifestations of violence against systemically oppressed and indigenous communities. In the last few years, we've heard a lot about the border wall, Donald Trump's attempt to curb immigration by fortifying physical barriers between the United States and Mexico. By the end of his presidency, Trump didn't fully accomplish his border wall goals, but the miles of construction that did occur still caused, and continue to cause, incredible suffering. That wall, in many ways, parallels another violent structure, the wall in the occupied West Bank, Palestine, often referred to as the Apartheid Wall. A few quick notes here. The militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border even before the wall, has caused unimaginable loss of life and devastation for migrants crossing the southern border. Between 1999 and 2019, Humane Borders has documented 3,996 migrant deaths along the Arizona section of the border. While that in and of itself is a huge number, Arizona's border with Mexico only makes up around 370 of the nearly 2,000 miles that is the U.S.-Mexico border. Precise data collection is incredibly difficult because it requires finding and recording human remains, and the organization Border Angels estimates that the overall number of migrant deaths on the border for a 20-year period 
could be anything between 9,100 to 29,000 deaths. The wall only exacerbates that. Today though, we'll be focusing mainly on indigenous and marginalized border communities that were affected by wall construction. We also want to acknowledge the sensitivity of the language we use to talk about some of the issues on our episode today. In recent months, due to the protests against the forced expulsions of Palestinians in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, Jerusalem, and the devastatingly high civilian death toll in Gaza at the hands of the Israeli military, we have seen increased scrutiny of the way journalists talk about Palestine and Israel. In June, over 250 journalists from outlets including The Washington Post and The LA Times signed a letter calling for more accurate reporting of occupation and oppression. For so long, mainstream news media have used quote-unquote neutral words like conflict to describe Israel and Palestine, portraying a false sense of symmetry that erases clear power dynamics. While we won't be able to go into a lot of the history and context of the Palestinian struggle, given the scope of this episode, and we'll be mainly focusing on the West Bank within the framework of occupation, we'll try to be very intentional about referring to concepts like apartheid, the legal term used by various human rights organizations, international, Palestinian, and Israeli, to describe the illegal occupation. And we hope to maintain accuracy in our language while centering indigenous voices. And now, the episode. Wall or no wall, the U.S.-Mexico border is something that many of us see as inevitable and permanent. But in reality, the imposed line that demarcates the separation between the two nation-states is really just a small part of history. Lupe Castillo, a Tucson-based anti-wall activist and a retired history professor, says that the U.S.-Mexico border has always been militarized due to its violent origins. That is, the United States invading Mexico, and then ending up um, really conquering Mexico, and then taking the lands that were going to, uh, you know, form part of the United States that today we call the southwestern part of the United States. Uh, and, and adding, you know, the last edition was done in 1854, uh, which is when it took in uh, the city where I live in, Tucson, and the autumn um, nation as well. Communities have existed in what we call the borderlands long before there was a U.S. or a Mexico. Lupe, for example, self-identifies as Mexican, although both she and her parents were born on the American side of the border. Uh, I was born in this area, as my family has been for, for many uh, generations. And uh, so I consider myself and our family to be natives of, these, of this re region that ranges basically from um, Southern Arizona all the way to the, uh, to the state of Sonora. And then in terms of nation states, the, the border and the establishment of the United States and, and Mexico, uh, that um, our, our families, uh, uh, you know, have have been in this region before there was, uh, uh, you know, Mexico or the United States. Uh, so um, we feel very much, uh, and I feel very much, uh, 
uh, part of the of the region. And while communities like Lupe's hold long ties to the region, indigenous border tribes in particular have been living in what we refer to as Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California since time immemorial. So uh, anytime I, I talk to individuals about the border in terms of a Notham perspective, I always highlight the fact that we've been fighting issues along the border since 1854, and that was when the U.S.-Mexico border was created. This is Giselle Ramon Sabaron. We heard her voice at the beginning of the episode. When we spoke together, she introduced herself in Autumn first, before switching to English. Giselle is a member of the Tohono Autumn Nation, located along the southern Arizona border. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona in American Indian Studies with a minor in journalism and is a full-time faculty member at Doono Atham Community College. She told me what the border means for a people that has existed in the region for countless years. Our ancestral land is a huge area, and then all of a sudden, without any consultation to us, you have the Gadsden Purchase that happened. And right before that, you have Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago. And so all of these are fighting over land, fighting over possession. And of course, we didn't know about it. Again, we never were consulted. We, we never had a seat at the table. And then Verlon Jose, former vice chairman of the Tono Atom Nation in Southern Arizona and former chairman of the Chukut Cook District, tells us more about the history of the border as it pertains to the Tono Atom Nation, starting with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which created a U.S.-Mexico border between the Gila River and the Rio Grande which uh, put most of what is now uh, the Thorn Autumn Nation uh, in Mexico. And then the Gaston Purchase happened. And for $10 million, the United States government bought from Mexico another piece of land, which actually cut in half the lands of the Thorn Autumn half of our family in Mexico and half of our family in the United States. So, ever since the modern-day border was established, the Tohono O'odham Nation has been split into two. That made it very difficult for tribal members because you have one nation that are two national nationalities. And so, by dividing our land in half, you then have tribal members that become Mexican citizens, and then you have tribal members that are U.S. citizens. To Verlon Jose, the issue is highly personal. Although he identifies first and foremost as Tohono he holds both American and Mexican citizenship and has family on both sides of the border. He tells me about his experiences growing up. In some places there was a four-strand barbed-wire fence in some places there was nothing. So you would never know that you went into Mexico. Growing up, uh, I traveled a lot with my father and not even knowing that we were entering into another country uh, in, in, in Mexico. All I knew is we were going to grandma's house, we were going to the next community, and so forth. 
1994, however, the U.S. government, under the Clinton administration, launched Operation Gatekeeper, sharply increasing border patrol and erecting barriers and fences along the borderlands, affecting the Otham nation as well. This was catalyzed further in 2001, after 9-11, and the militarization has only increased since then. Some 6-7,000 miles away from the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, another imposed line works to separate people from their own community members and land in the occupied West Bank, Palestine. Let me briefly provide some historical context here. Ever since the 1967 war between Israel and its neighbors, Israel began a period of military occupation over the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and Gaza, which continues to this day. Despite the unanimous adoption of United Nations Security Council Resolution 242, which calls for Israel to withdraw from occupied territories, Israel has not done so, and the West Bank and Gaza remain under occupation. According to the Israeli government, the occupation is temporary. However, over half a century later, it goes on, and Palestinians continue to be subject to severe human rights violations due to illegal settlements, policing, and loss of land. The line that demarcates the West Bank is called the Green Line. But when we talk about the wall, what's important to note is that the majority of it isn't built along that line. Rather, it exists in the West Bank itself. So the wall in the West Bank, uh, it's about 800 kilometers that goes from the north to the south and go deep into the West Bank. We are talking about 80% of the wall built on the inside West Bank, away from the Green Line. Sometimes six kilometers far away from the Green Line, sometimes 22 kilometers far away from the deep into the West Bank. This is Jamel Juma. He's a Palestinian grassroots organizer and an anti-apartheid wall activist. It's a long story. As someone who opened his eyes on the occupation and on the checkpoints, on the oppression, on the soldiers everywhere, and uh, so this is, was the beginning. He's been involved in grassroots activism since the first Intifada, or uprising, and founded several initiatives around the time of the second Intifada in the year 2000. He's the coordinator of the Palestinian grassroots anti-apartheid wall campaign and spearheads various other anti-wall and anti-occupation causes regarding defense of land. He tells me about the start of wall construction in 2002, following what he said was a huge military assault and attack on Palestinians, a period referred to by the Israeli government as Operation Defensive Shield, which was a large-scale offensive that involved the military occupation of the six largest cities in the West Bank, as well as their surrounding areas. According to a United Nations Secretary General report, the operation and other violent events within the same time frame claimed the lives of nearly 500 Palestinians and 100 Israelis. And later on, after three months, they start like destroying and bulldozing the land, the land widely in the, in the northern areas. The Israeli government refers to the wall as a security fence. Similarly, the U.S.-Mexico wall has also been justified as a security operation. I talked to Ricardo de Anda, a civil rights lawyer in Laredo, Texas, 
who has spearheaded the legal fight against the wall by representing Texas landowners. We've come to embrace walls uh, as a way of keeping us safe and keeping danger on the other side. But in our case, along the southern, southern border, that's not an issue at all. Putting up a wall indicates that there's a danger, an imminent danger, if someone who doesn't have the proper documents comes across. Despite the distance between the West Bank and the U.S.-Mexico walls, the two structures serve many of the same functions, isolating communities, slicing up land, and restricting movement. Deanda explains that federal officials need to gain a permit to survey land before it can be condemned and taken for border wall construction. Landowners in Webb and Zapata counties of southern Texas, we're talking about business owners, homeowners, ranchers, etc., had to put up a legal fight to ensure that the federal government couldn't even get to the stage of surveying their land. Because of the pushback from the community and the uh, unified, concerted opposition from the landowners in Webb and Zapata County, including the local college, the city, the counties of Webb and Zapata counties, that all of whom own land along the river, um, we were able to stall them sufficiently to where we got to the other side of the election. But while private landowners along the Rio Grande region of Texas have been able to stall the government's land grabs for now, indigenous communities along the border have experienced an incredibly difficult battle. The Kumeyaay people in Southern California, for example, have seen the destruction and desecration of religious and cultural sites where tribal members pray, practice sacred ceremonies, and honor their ancestors. While various Kumeyaay bands filed lawsuits against the Trump administration for violations of a range of environmental and native cultural preservation laws, they were unable to prevent much of the damage. Border wall construction meant the dynamiting of sites that so many people have held dear for generations. Their story is not unique. Tribal communities in Texas and Arizona have experienced similar struggles in their attempt to defend their lands. Giselle speaks to me from an autumn perspective in Southern Arizona. You have to remind individuals that we are sovereign nations and we have tribal sovereignty and what that means and also remind people that we were the first first people here you know and this is this is our ancestral land this is where we've always remained and so um you know we didn't ask to be put on reservations but that's what happened to us and so um, and even more so, you know, we didn't ask for our children to be sent to boarding schools. We didn't ask for all of these decisions being made for us because um, we were thought to be incapable of deciding for our people and our children. And while the Tohono O'odham Nation does have a significant degree of agency over the land, sometimes I say that my I say that. We are only as sovereign as the federal government will allow us to be sovereign. We have no sovereign jurisdiction outside of the 2.8 million acres. 
that means that within the official boundaries of the Tohunu'atham nation, there's no actual wall. There are low metal vehicle barriers instead. However, Autum people and land extend far beyond the bounds of the federally recognized nation, and the damage has been done. On our Aboriginal lands to the east and to the west, there are walls. One, namely, to the west in the Oregon Pipe National Monument, where one of our sacred traditional religious areas is a um, place called Ito Bikito, um, in our language called Arawaika, a natural spring there, was in total disarray and in that area, uh, sacred religious burial sites were bulldozed and blown up and to put a Indigenous religious sites are meant to be protected under federal law. However, the Clinton-era Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996 allows the Department of Homeland Security to waive a vast number of laws that protect citizens and the environment for building border barriers. The Trump administration invoked this law to waive the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and a plethora of environmental protection acts to build the wall. The wall in the West Bank not only violates Palestinian sovereignty, it's also illegal, according to international law. Jessica Montel, the executive director of Hamoked, an Israeli legal organization that offers individual legal aid to Palestinians under occupation, explains why the wall is so problematic from a legal point of view. The main concern is that almost all of this um, barrier or wall is built inside the West Bank. And then the, the main concern is all of the ways that it hinders Palestinians from moving freely inside the West Bank. So Hamoked, the main people that come to Hamoked with problems around the separation barrier are farmers, and you have tens of thousands of people who own farmlands on the other side of the barrier. And then they need a special permit to get access to their own lands inside the West Bank. And it's, you know, a hugely complicated, cumbersome, infuriating bureaucracy to be navigating. The West Bank wall thus separates Palestinians from their own people and from their own land. And while Israelis on either side of the wall can pass through with ease, the situation is starkly different for Palestinians. People are denied permits to move freely in the West Bank, again, for all sorts of infuriating, unjustified reasons that have nothing to do with security. Your plot is of land is too small, uh, you didn't file the right paperwork, you didn't show that your grandfather actually uh, you know, has left it to you, or you have to re-register it, or we didn't get the papers, or it's blurred the paper. That, I mean, all sorts of, you know, really infuriating um, reasons. And that's why the West Bank Wall is frequently referred to as the Apartheid Wall. 
they're already isolating the Palestinians in their places. They are discriminating against them in different uh, aspects of their lives. So, uh, they're isolating them, neglecting their, uh, marginalizing their life, services, everything. So, so when the, when you start building the wall, we called it an apartheid wall. According to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, apartheid is a crime against humanity, defined as inhumane acts that are, quote, committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systemic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. Although the term originated to describe systemic racial oppression in South Africa by white settler colonists, it's now a legal term that has been applied widely to Israel's actions in the occupied Palestinian territories. In April of 2021, Human Rights Watch stated that the Israeli government is committing, quote, crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. So in effect, the wall isn't really even a separation wall. I know often it's referred to as separation wall, but it's uh, something between, I would say, if I had to qualify it, is between something like a land grab wall and a prison wall in the sense that it is genuinely it genuinely encapsulates the Palestinian population in very very small very densely populated residential areas uh, and takes away all the remaining agricultural land um, green land any any space where Palestinian communities can expand that's Leila Sansur whose voice you heard at the beginning of the episode. She's a Palestinian-British filmmaker and the founder of Open Bethlehem, a campaign that showcases the heritage of Bethlehem and brings attention to the effects of settlements and occupation on her home city. Both she and Jamal Jama tell me about the wall's varying placement and structure. Uh, the, the wall as a concrete nine meters high, it's ranging from six meters to nine meters high. It has been built on the main cities, like where they can't go inside the Green Line. Like in Kalkilia, it's located on the Green Line. Like in Tulkarem, in Jerusalem, and the neighborhoods around, like in Abu Dis and that areas. And as arbitrary as the placement of the wall seems, the snake-like structure that leads to the ghettoization of Palestinian communities is far from random. Why is most of the barrier built inside the West Bank? It's in order to encircle uh, Israeli settlements, which are themselves a violation of international law. Uh, so, you know, one violation then compounds the other. Jamel Jama says that the building of settlements is part of a colonial apartheid project and explains that settlements in the West Bank started after the occupation began in 1967. He said that settlements expanded intensively, and while there were around 110,000 settlers in the West Bank before the Oslo Accords in 1993... Now we are talking about over 750,000 settlers. The international community is at a near consensus on the illegality of settlements. However, beyond resolutions and criticism, UN member states have not taken concrete steps towards holding Israel accountable. 
As an occupier, Israel is bound by a particular body of international humanitarian law, occupation law. Under Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, occupying powers can't transfer members of their population to the land that they occupy. Settlements do just that, and the wall acts as an enabler. Take Jerusalem, for example. Jamel Jama says that the wall snakes through the city, going south to annex blocks of settlements, then back up to separate Palestinian communities, then east to annex more settlements, and so on. By this, they isolate from Jerusalem 22 villages and Shafat refugee camp with a population of 225,000 population. And they get inside Jerusalem by this four major blocks of settlements with uh, 211,000 settlers became part of the city. This is silent ethnic cleansing. The effects of this apartheid system are structural and environmental. The disparity appears in all aspects of life, infrastructure, access to resources, and especially water. And the issue of water is by no means just a Palestinian one. For the Toonoatam, the wall passes through the Kitobakito Springs, the crucial water source that Verlon Jose mentioned earlier. You know, you're having the border built right on top of a sacred site where our ancestors are buried. And then also to depleting water from one of um, our, our springs that has endangered animals that are living there and is a water source for so many others. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the Sonoran Desert, water is scarce here. So for us to have a sacred spring that can retain water and, you know, has been there for us and animals and plants and, you know, everybody within, as we say, the Jewwood, our land, our earth, and you're just going to go and you're going to deplete all the water from that to build a border wall. Ecologically, the effects are devastating, putting not just people, but also flora and fauna at risk. And this flora and fauna is a crucial part of the Atum people's relationship with the land. From the soil itself to the Soaro cacti that have been cleared to make way for the metal structure, everything holds a story. To us, Soaros are ancestors. They were Soaros, um, you know, we have traditional stories about it. And a Soaro was a person that turned into a Soaro. So they're people to us. The U.S.-Mexico Wall and the West Bank Wall do not exist independently from one another. The United States is the largest provider of funds for military assistance to the Israeli government. That's $3.8 billion per year. And likewise, the American government has hired Israeli contractors for border fortification. One of the companies, Elbit Systems, or Israel's largest private arms manufacturer, is responsible for the installation of surveillance towers called Integrated Fixed Towers, or IFTs, across southern Arizona, including on Ottom land. As a tribal leader, Verlon Jose was part of the decision-making process to incorporate Elbit Systems' Integrated Fixed Towers on Ottom land. He told me that the Legislative Council approved of the towers in a move that was supported by a majority of tribal members. 
And the whole idea of the intent is for those integrated fixed towers is to reduce the footprint of the Border Patrol in the tribal communities. However, not everyone agrees. Jessel told me about the harmful effects that these towers have on local bird species, which are an essential part of the Toonoatam environment. Community members, particularly younger people, are also concerned about the militarization of indigenous land through this technology. In 2016, the Guvo'o district, one of the 11 Toonoatam districts, was opposed to the installation of IFTs. When the United States Custom and Border Protection first proposed the idea in 2016, they held a public comment period for citizens to express opinions or concerns on the establishment of IFTs on autumn land. The public report, featuring comments from 27 private individuals, reveals that many citizens responded with strong criticisms, citing violations of sovereignty, environmental harm, and increased policing. A research report by the Arizona-Palestine Solidarity Alliance explains that Elbit's towers were developed specifically for surveillance on the West Bank wall. Jamal Jama described this Israeli surveillance technology as field-tested. Field-tested on whom? On the Palestinians? In the end, indigenous people from the U.S.-Mexico region to Palestine affirm that walls are structures of violence, violence against a people, and violence against their land. We're very fortunate that we've never been removed from our homelands, unlike other tribes. And so we've always lived on our ancestral land, and that's very special to us. And our creator made us out of the earth and put us here to be caretakers of the land. And it's just being destroyed before our eyes, and we can't do anything about it. Leila Sensur expressed a similar sentiment to me, referring to the building of the wall as the vandalization of her city, Bethlehem. Literally, the wall means it's a death sentence to the city because it disallows it from uh, imagining moving anywhere. You know, it cannot, it cannot control its life. It cannot expand. Uh, it has no um, control over its resources, over its economy. Um, and that means that many, many people who are educated or capable or have the means to leave end up leaving. So there's a huge brain drain as well from this city. Just as the narratives of oppression are shared along the U.S.-Mexico border region and occupied Palestine, the resistance, too, is tied together. Jessel tells me about Autumn tribal members who had the opportunity to travel to Palestine and see the wall and talk to Palestinians. Jamal Jama also recounts his experiences visiting the U.S.-Mexico border region in 2017 for a solidarity trip. He emphasizes the importance of Global South solidarity for collective liberation. This is one of the fundamental, important like lines of our activities. 
and solidarity like and is to strengthen and our uh, relation and connections with uh, with different indigenous communities around the around the world where we have exchange information about uh, about the situation what's in common and how we can support each other always so in spite of the pain and destruction the fight goes on you know it's like you have tribal members that went and put themselves in front of a bulldozer or a tractor and they got arrested for it and now they're facing criminal charges for standing up to tell them that this is wrong what you're doing you know and then again we've had numerous um articles you know broadcasts uh tv networks come out like all of this and it's just kind of like uh we can't stop fighting but at the same time though it's it's hard and it's something that um i know we're as a nation we're not gonna give up on but we kind of transitioned from uh, opposing the wall to now how do we heal the border how do we how do we remove the wall that was built with every new generation some new energy does emerge and i think people um are you probably i could say that you, you're probably witnessing it now there's there is a new generation again and they will be fighting and they will not accept and put up with um what's being done to them before we end I'd like to emphasize that today's episode reveals only a slice of the reality of what is going on along the U.S.-Mexico border and in occupied Palestine. Although the end of the Trump administration did mean an end to wall construction, the issues are far from over. Texas Governor Greg Abbott released a plan for continuing border wall construction last month in June. Likewise, Activists and community members hope that the Biden administration will take active steps towards removing the wall, but the federal government has not revealed any such plans at this point. The administration has instead supported the expansion of surveillance technology along the border, a proposal that has been opposed by a range of American human and civil rights organizations. At the same time, in the end of June, Israeli forces demolished a Palestinian butcher shop in the East Jerusalem region of Silwan, the first of a tentative wave of demolitions that could bring the destruction of nearly 90 Palestinian homes. The land is to be emptied of its current residents for the construction of a biblical tourism park. Because these issues are ongoing, we have compiled a few resources on indigenous and borderland communities and the effects of border militarization on native and migrant populations as well as on the Palestinian struggle and Israeli occupation all of these resources are available in the description of this episode and we encourage you to access them as you do your own research this was shraddha joshi reporting for stories from the border This episode was edited by Vivekay Kim and produced by Shraddha Joshi with original music from Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe now on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts for more Borderland stories.